Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Biden went from 36% approval to 45%. All of a sudden, Joe Biden's on the rebound. Inflation, massive. Inflation Reduction Act doesn't reduce inflation. The border, remarkably, miraculously porous. I'm going to get into that story. And the country is divided as ever. I have senators saying just on the subject of abortion, it's a call to arms. Call to arms! But yet, Biden is up? It's not because of the railroad strike. No, no, no. That thing got averted, and I am thrilled, overjoyed about that. Because the railroad strike could have cost the country $2 billion a day and just would have been insult on insult on insult in terms of injury on injury on injury. Or is that insult to injury to insult to injury to insult to injury? However you want to say it, you feel free. But that was averted. The Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, Uh, stating that moments ago, this was in the early morning hours, following more than 20 consecutive hours of negotiation. The rail companies and union negotiators came to a tentative agreement that balances the needs of workers, businesses, and our nation's economy. The Biden administration applauds all parties for reaching this hard-fought, mutually beneficial deal. Our rail system is integral to our supply chain, and a disruption would have had catastrophic impacts on industries, travelers, and families across the country. I appreciate the honesty in recognizing the catastrophe that could have come. I'm glad that it didn't. I'm bothered that it got this far. Don't get me wrong. But Biden going to take a victory lap on this? Do we even think that the Biden administration had anything to do with coming to some type of arrangement and agreement where rail workers, based on every conversation, they're saying, dear Lord, we can't even get a day off. We can take vacation, but we have to have somebody to fill our vacations. Otherwise, we can't leave. You can argue, well, go get another job. You can make the argument. I'm not saying that you can't. I am saying they have some things that are bothering them, and there was a reason they're saying, well, we're not going to be able to work like this, and they were saying no to deals that were coming from the railroad companies in the past. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you guys. 833, got Tony, 833-468-8669. 8669. I had a couple people who said they were in the rail worker uh, world uh, reach out to me and explain some of these some of these things. And as I said to them, I'd love to know what the other side is thinking of it so I can figure out how it it all goes together. I'm not calling anybody a liar. I'm saying that when you have a conversation, you want all the data possible. Data shows us uh, that the Dow is down about 150, the Nasdaq's down 150. I guess, you know, the markets were trying to to come back up. We'll see where they end up. Thank goodness we don't have a railroad strike. Now we can focus on the radical inflation and the poorest border. And as I said, I'll get into the poorest border. But man, I am just all, I got two pieces of audio for you. Just a, a remarkable look at the world. 
and a, a really warped view about what it is we are dealing with. The first came from a guy by the name of Mandela Barnes. You may never have heard the name before. Mandela Barnes is the Democrat candidate for Senate in Wisconsin. Now, this is a really fascinating race because he's running against Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson never even planned on getting into politics. He's got, a, I think it's like a printing business. He makes a bunch of loot. I was once on a bus tour with Ron Johnson. Nice enough dude. Nice enough dude. Liked him quite a bit. I don't necessarily agree with maybe everything he does, but I liked him quite a bit. And in the state of Wisconsin, remember, you've got Madison and then you've got the rest of Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin is often described as 15 square miles surrounded by reality. It's the Berkeley of the Midwest. It's that level of radical leftist. Well, you have Mandela Barnes, this this progressive, who was doing well in the polls, doing really well in the polls, like knocking it out of the park in the polls. If I were to trust a poll, and I'm taking a look at uh, the last month right now, Barnes plus seven, Barnes plus four, Barnes plus two. Wait, whoa, whoa, what happened? Well, the first two polls I just gave you, Talk about registered voters. No, 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 no. Give me likely voters. Give me the people who are going to show up and, and, and pull a little lever. Well, when you get to the likely voters, there's two polls. The Trafalgar Group, which had 1,091 respondents, a margin of error of 2.9%, Barnes plus two. Well, plus two is in the margin of error. Then there is this most recent poll from Marquette which has Ron Johnson, the the Republican, by one. But that had 632 likely voters with a margin of error of 4.9. 4.9 is too much. Discount, erase, erase, forget that. It doesn't matter. But the spread for Mandela Barnes has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And maybe it's because of comments like this when asked about the riots that took place during 2020. Is what we're seeing in whole, is it a riot or is it rebellion? It's frustration. It's frustration. People, you can't, you can't tell people how to be frustrated. And like, I, I go back to the same point over and over again. This didn't come out of nowhere. Folks didn't just wake up and decide that we're going to break some glass. We're going to set some things on fire. So on one hand, you have the protests that are sending the message directly to leadership, making demands, very specific demands. And you have people uh, who are doing damage. Uh, however, the, the question always comes up, well, when are the uh, protesters, when are the activists, and organizers going to hold uh, the people that are doing damage accountable. Well, the fact is that uh, organizers are just pushing for accountability as well because that goes to the good cop, bad cop argument. When are good cops going to hold bad cops accountable? We're all looking for the same thing. So I, I, more than, more than uh, damage, destruction, and rebellion, it is frustration. And- Frustration's an excuse? Frustration is an excuse to destroy city blocks, to destroy people's businesses, to engage in acts of murder. Frustration? Can I utilize that argument uh, for those who rioted on January 6th? 
Oh, come on. It wasn't rebellion. It was frustration. That's all. Just a couple of kooky kids. I don't think you can get away with the argument. But maybe this kind of argument, this kind of radicalness, is what's getting noticed uh, by the, 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 the people of Wisconsin, and they're saying, oh, yeah, Ron Johnson. Yeah, he's milk toast enough. I'll take it. What a thing to say. Frustration is, is the reason for the violence. Not the reason, because it could be the reason, but that's what makes it acceptable. They're frustrated. What do you expect them to do? Maybe I could expect a lot of things. I'm frustrated on a whole host of subjects. It doesn't mean I can go destroy someone's businesses or shoot somebody or stab somebody or attack somebody or just generally kill somebody who didn't do anything to me. I want to couple this, just just, just merge it on together with this commentary from Maisie Hirono, the senator from Hawaii, who I must admit, man, I don't like at all. At all. All. I am not a fan at all of Maisie Hirono. I have never, ever been a fan. I have actually said, do not uh, raise your daughters to emulate Maisie Hirono. Don't allow uh, your boys uh, to date anybody who thinks like Maisie Hirono. Said it, meant it, believe it. That's how bad of a mind and of a person I think Maisie Hirono is. And I have felt this way for a good number of years. And I want everyone to know that I'm right. Because Maisie Hirono, so upset over uh, the possibility of regulations on abortion, that the answer is a call to arms. The word hypocrites, it doesn't even go far enough to call them out on what they're doing. This is an outright attack on women in this country. That is how I see it. That is how more and more women and those who support our right to make decisions about our own bodies, that is how we see it. And why? (laughs) Because that's what's happening. Madam President, I yield the floor, but clearly, you know, this is a um, literally call to arms in our country. Literally a call to arms in our country because Lindsey Graham suggested some legislation on abortion. 15-week ban on abortion is uh, basically what he said, which fits in with the global community. If you want to talk about global communities, that's that's, uh, a little more forgiving than a fair amount of countries. Only seven countries have abortion after 15 weeks. We should say in, in, in the developed world. I think I, I need to add that caveat. I believe I do. So his his uh, proposal is right there. I know I don't think the proposal is necessary. I think the proposal was a very, very large mistake. Incredible mistake. And I think that Lindsay has uh, misread uh, the, 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 the tea leaves. For sure he has mes- misread the tea leaves. But it's so extreme... What it is that uh, that Lindsey Graham has has proposed that you need a call to arms, 
So uh, basically, you're calling for violence against pro-lifers. Is this what it is? What else could call to arms possibly mean? In a world where anything Donald Trump said was an incitement to insurrection, what else could a call to arms possibly mean? It is what it is, what it is, what it is. Why is anybody okay with this? Why would anybody think this is rational? Why can't we say this is everything that we oppose? This violent rhetoric from elected officials. I thought it was the evil MAGA Republicans who engaged in all this rhetoric. That's Maisie Hirono. Somebody get her a red trucker hat pronto. But yet it goes by the wayside. It just, just, just like it, like it, like it doesn't exist. Like it didn't happen, but it did happen. And this is the, I cannot say it enough. And and I'm sorry that I have to, I, I am flat out concerned about the election. I'm concerned about people who have been listening to people like Joe Biden, who has been dividing the country. There's polling that shows he's been dividing the country. That's why I don't understand how he possibly has a raise in his popularity from 36% to 45%. All right, you can't go anywhere but up. But still, the man's been dividing the country, called half the country freaking fascists. Unless we've got people who are totally down with calling people fascists with trying to denigrate half the country, claim that half the country is, isn't even human, half the country is trying to destroy you, you can do anything you want to them because after all, you're saving democracy. I've got a sitting senator with a literal, her words, call to arms. Why shouldn't I be concerned about the election? Why shouldn't I be concerned that the you-know-what can hit the fan on November 8th and things can get really ugly? I won't lie to you. I will never I will never lie. I will never lie to you. I hope to be wrong. I hope to be wrong. But my concern is very very real. Because of the violence, the anger being fomented by people like Senator Hirono, people like President Biden. These are elected officials. I thought we were supposed to hold them to a different standard. It's okay to do because it's those evil MAGA Republicans. When Congressman Hank Johnson, a man who once thought that too many troops on the island of Guam would cause the island to capsize, true story, Said that in a congressional hearing, that man has been reelected multiple times since then by the people of Georgia. People who descended on the Capitol on January 6th are just like those people who descended on school board meetings all across the country. Those radical MAGA Republicans. So uh, suburban soccer moms are just like MAGA Republicans who are the fascists and the enemies of democracy and who must be destroyed for wanting the best for their kids' education and that isn't what they're getting from far too many school boards across the country. Fomenting the anger, fomenting the hate, ginning it up, it all plays in. I'm right to be concerned. I just hope that my concerns were for naught.
I'm Tony Katz. In Los Angeles, California, there is a race for mayor. And one of those people running is Democrat Karen Bass, a former congressman. She also, I believe she was uh, the leader in the General Assembly, Speaker of the General Assembly in California. And then she got the opportunity to be uh, a member of Congress because, you know, that's just the way it works. And now she's running uh, for mayor. She was the victim of a burglary last week. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you guys. Um, The burglary involved two firearms being stolen from her home. But everything else of value, as has been reported, wasn't taken. They just stole the guns. That's that's uh, pretty weird. Now, um, Bass is saying um, that she no longer feels uh, safe in the city, even though... She said um, she thought her personal safety just uh, earlier in the year was a 10. She now says my safety was shattered. Well, yes, a burglary will, 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 will do that to you. Having somebody come, um, you know, and steal your stuff will change your position. So if your safety was shattered, do you no longer feel safe in, in, in Los Angeles? And I guess uh, the question is, well, isn't that true of a lot of people? They don't feel safe in Los Angeles. How could you be honestly saying six months ago or a year ago that your safety in L.A. is a 10 out of 10? When that, of course, wasn't true. Of course, that means it was a lie when it was said. I live north of Indianapolis. Do I feel safe in in downtown Indy? No. I'm not at a 1 out of 10. I'm not at a 10 out of 10. I figure I'm at a 6, and that's not comfortable. I think some people will be like, Tony, you are being way too generous. I'm a 3.2 at the most. Very possible. Very possible. But to say you're a 10 out of 10 was to tell people that... Their concerns weren't legit. I got to tell you, I think that's, I think that's super ugly to do. Their concerns are absolutely legit, and I think it should make people think twice about who they vote for. I think honesty matters, and I don't think Karen Bass was giving it to you. Also, they only stole the guns. That is weird. This is Tony Katz today. Well, of course, this is about creating a de facto gun registry. The pressuring of the credit card companies to change the category code for firearm stores. So instead of being sporting goods, they're gun stores. So you can track who has made what purchases. I mean, that's that that's that's fact. I don't. I can't imagine that anybody is claiming somehow that this isn't exactly what it is that that's happening. Tony Katz, Tony Katz, today it's good to be with you. Now you guys know uh, that I come from the world of credit card processing before radio. Uh, this is what my my family did. This is what I uh, uh, did uh, for a while. Uh, you know, my 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 father, eighty four, is still working, 
My, my mother's 75. Dear sweet Diane, my father's 84. They're still doing this. And I, I don't know if you've ever had parents in, in a business, and it's, it's not a billion-dollar business or anything uh, like that. You know, I'm, I'm not an heir to some kind of outrageous fortune. But I help. And as your parents get older, you find you're helping in, in different ways. I've, I've really been getting more and more uh, into it. And this comes out, I've, I've received phone calls from everybody, like, what does this mean? I'm like, well, first, well, none of us are 100% sure how necessarily the code kind of conversation is going to work, but the, the concern is massive. Stephen Gutowski joins us right now. He is the man behind The Reload, thereload.com. Fantastic conversations about firearms and what's going on in the world of the Second Amendment. Credit card companies won't respond to questions on new gun store code as Republicans demand answers. Stephen joins us right now. Um, talk to me about what it is Republicans have been asking for and what it is uh, that the uh, federal government has not responded to. Yeah, so the, the, a group of 100 Republican congressmen sent a letter to Visa, which asked uh, you know, a series of questions basically about why they made this code change or why they agreed to implement it, uh, basically, and and then what they plan to do, how they plan to actually use it, um, especially given that the advocates behind this change want to use this data to flag suspicious uh, purchasing patterns and send them to law enforcement uh, in the hopes of stopping you know, mass shooters. So you know that's what they're asking for is a series of questions they sent over, basically in line with, what's your plan? Why are you doing this? As you write, of course, and th this is uh, what the Republican congressman sent to Visa. Of course, there is no accepted, consistent, scientific, or legitimate way to determine from this data what is and what is not a suspicious purchase. But it's very clear from Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, from Senator Elizabeth Warren, the Senator from Massachusetts, this is all about tracking suspicious packages or, or suspicious purchases, I, I, I should say. Have they given a definition of what a suspicious purchase is? No. Uh they haven't. There, there's been a lot of talk about this. The idea kind of originated with uh, the New York Times back in 2018, where they did a series of stories pointing out that mass shooters had, in some cases, had used credit cards to buy their firearms. But, I mean, obviously, you know, you're talking about uh, buying a couple of guns over the course of a week or, or even several months, uh, which, you know, that's going to include it's obviously not evidence of any wrongdoing, especially because all purchases of guns made with credit cards are at gun dealers where you need to go through a background check to complete the sale. Like we already have a process for checking up on whether or not you can own a gun before you buy one at a retailer. But um, they haven't played out any specific uh, criteria for what they would consider to be suspicious. And, you know, as the Republicans point out here, it would be very difficult to think of one because, I mean, a lot of Americans own guns and a lot of Americans use credit cards. So a lot of Americans use credit cards to buy guns, and it doesn't mean that they've done anything wrong. Talking to Stephen Gutowski, he is the mind behind the reload.com, a fantastic resource uh, about firearms and what's going on in the world of 2A. 
the idea of this being a de facto gun registry, I start with the thesis of, well, of course it is. Uh, but talk me off the ledge. Are people like myself, people out there who are concerned about this and worried about this, are they worried about nothing? Well, I wouldn't say that you're worried about nothing. Uh, I would say that that's the end goal that they want to see. You've already seen the New York Times, uh, the writer who sort of initiated this whole uh, discussion. Um, his name's Andrew Sorkin. And he, he already reacted to it by saying, well, this is a good first start, first step. And what we need next is uh, for the banks and credit card companies to have an uh, detailed look into the basket. Like right now, all the MCC code does, all this code change does is, is uh, list uh, gun retailers under their own code. There's hundreds of these codes. They have them for, you know, bike stores and, and uh, grocery stores and every other kind of store. They don't tell the credit card companies what you're actually buying at those stores. So if you go in and buy a safe at a gun store, it's going to look the same to the credit card company as if you bought, you know, a dozen guns. They don't know the difference yet, not at this point. And and so that's where, like, that's another reason why this theory they have of trying to track suspicious purchases doesn't really make sense because the, the MCC code doesn't actually do that. You don't see what the person is buying. You just have a general industry that they're spending money in. Uh, and so you need more Steps, which is what they want to do, to be fair. Like, that's what the gun control advocates who push for this change, they want, in addition to this, they want to be able to see exactly what you're buying at the stores and then use that uh, to further um, uh, be able to track what, you're, what, you're, what guns you're buying. Now, but that uh, hasn't happened yet. The, 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 yes, you are correct, and I, I described this the other day. There are an unlimited number of MCC codes for all different sorts uh, of businesses. And when I talk about the tracking, as you discuss it there, it, it's, it's the part two. It is the never-ending push desire uh, uh, maneuvering to work around the Second Amendment. This is because they have come, they, the, the anti-gun zealots, as I will refer to them as, maybe you refer to it differently and that's fine. Uh, they have come to the conclusion that they can't do away with the Second Amendment and that the Supreme Court will not be on their side when it comes to the Second Amendment, whether we're talking about the McDonald decision, uh, we're talking about Heller, whether we're talking about uh, the New York uh, State uh, Pistol and Rifle Association uh, case that just was uh, adjudicated this past session. They cannot accept the fact that the Second Amendment says what it says and means what it means, and the objective is to prevent you from being able to make a gun purchase, including maybe leaking information about you, maybe making the claim that you've got too many purchases, too, many, too much ammunition purchased, therefore you shouldn't be allowed this, it's suspicious, so we have the right to take your firearms and we have the right to ask questions and maybe hold up uh, your, your, your rights. Never mind whether or not you think it will get to that part. Am I correct in the first part that they can't figure out how to do away with the Second Amendment, so they're looking for ways to get around it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair reading of what, uh, you know, obviously I'm sure they would uh, argue that they're not against the Second Amendment, but they certainly do want a lot of restrictions, which the Supreme Court has said are not possible under the Second Amendment. So, you know, it's maybe semantics there, but either way, like, this is part of a larger fight over 
financing of the gun industry, uh, which has been ongoing for quite a while now. You had under the Obama administration, there was Operation Choke Point, which sort of uh, tried to pressure financial institutions into not doing business with disfavored industries, uh, and one of those industries was the gun industry. And and so, you know, that this is not a new thing. You've seen uh, pressure uh, against major financial institutions like Citibank or the Bank of America to not uh, do business with gun manufacturers. That's been an ongoing fight for several years now uh, with some of the with those two banks making concessions to gun gun control advocates saying they won't work with uh, you know major gun companies unless they implement these uh, they stop making AR15s for instance um, and so now you're seeing this extended to the purchasing side of things to gun buyers not just gun companies and it's sort of part of a larger effort to restrict gun sales in America without going through uh, the legislative process. Let me change gears on you, uh, Stephen, talking to Stephen Gutowski of The Reload, thereload.com. Uh, An interesting story that I caught over there that I, I, I must admit uh, made me do a double take. Smith & Wesson sales collapse. All we have heard about is the increase in sales of firearms. And your story discusses that Smith & Wesson saw a 69% decline in sales year over year. Uh, is, is this a COVID-related story? Is this a uh, brand kind of falling behind uh, uh, others, whether it be Sig Sauer or others? What is the story here? Yeah, I don't think it's a Smith & Wesson, uh, you know, in particular issue. Ruger... Uh, reported their earnings a little bit earlier in the year, and they had a similar drop-off uh, in sales, you know, compared to last year. I think it's what it's sort of a continuation of what you're talking about at the beginning. There, you had two straight years of just incredible gun sales, and these companies were raking in record profits. Smith and Wesson had the first billion-dollar revenue year of any gun company in history uh, in 2021, and so uh, now you're seeing that start to taper off this it's a pretty clearly it's a pretty significant tapering off uh in that you know they're down 69 percent which is uh you know not a good thing for any company but it's it's also something that they aren't blindsided by uh you know they knew this was going to happen eventually that 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 level of sales was not going to be sustained forever the you know the gun industry is very cyclical uh, cyclical you know you you get these uh, boom and bust periods and uh, the important thing, I think, to notice about it is that the, now that we're entering in that tapering off period, you're still seeing sales higher than they were before uh, the pandemic, before 2020, before the rioting, uh, which drove a lot of sales. You're still seeing the, the new normal elevated above what it was during the Trump years, for instance. Have we seen a... Uh, pricing come back into line. For example, we saw ammunition become very, very expensive over the last few years. Are you seeing that come back into line now? Yeah, that's a good question. I wish it was. <laughs> I wish that uh, ammunition <laughs> pricing was back down to what it was in you know 2017 or something, but it's not. Uh, you know, yeah, it's not. It's not as crazy as it was a year or two ago. There's more supply now. You know, the, the industry is affected by all the same pressures that other industries from the supply chain issues to inflation. And so you're still seeing prices that are above what they were back in 2019, 2018. But 
but they're at least not accelerating any further and you're seeing supply come back into the stores and you're probably seeing prices you know come back down a little bit at least you're not out there scrambling to pay you know a dollar around for 45 or something um you know you're they're not at the highs that they were the crazy levels during the shortages but they're still elevated over what they were beforehand Steve Gatowski, TheReload.com. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Yes, I am very pleased <laughs> to announce a tentative labor agreement between that has been reached between the railroad workers and the railway companies. This agreement is a big win for America and for both, in my view. I want to thank the lead negotiators the, from the labor movement, the Brother of Locomotive Engineers, the trainmen, International Association of Sheet Metal and Air and Rail and Transportation Workers Union, and the other labor unions engaged. And this is a win for tens of thousands of rail workers and for their dignity and the dignity of their work. It's a recognition of that. During these early, dark, uncertain days of the pandemic, they showed up so every American could keep going. They worked tirelessly through the pandemic to ensure that families and communities got the deliveries they needed during these difficult few years. There's no doubt that railroad workers were working. That that's that is uh, certainly not the not 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 a question. I don't think that's a that's a debate by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just curious if Joe Biden now wants to take credit for making the deal happen. Because of the labor agreement, those rail workers will get better pay, a 24% wage increase over the next five years, improved working conditions, peace of mind around their health care by capping the cost that workers will have to pay. And it's about the right to go to a doctor or stay healthy and to make sure you're able to have the care you can afford. It's all part of this agreement. Well, I guess they could now, uh, you know, they could have added world peace in there and the whole thing would be good. Look, uh, again, I'm glad that the, the railroad strike didn't happen. Very, very glad for that. And if I was the president, I also would be making... Uh, this speech. Of course I would. Of course I would, and you would too. They earned and deserve these benefits. And this is a great deal for both sides, in my view. The agreement is also a victory for railway companies. And I want to thank the lead negotiators from the railway, the National Railway Labor Conference and our major rail companies. These companies also played a, uh, a critical role in keeping America moving during the pandemic. And that's not hyperbole. It's a fact. Well, thank goodness. Thank goodness Joe Biden isn't giving us hyperbole. Glad that there is a deal. I'm very, very happy uh, to see it. Now what are we going to do about inflation? Now what are we going to do about the border? Oh, the border is the story. The border is the story. You've got DeSantis sending uh, people to to Martha's Vineyard. You've got Greg Abbott dropping off people at, uh, 
at the doorstep of Kamala Harris, the vice president. And then on CNN, you've got Ken Burns, the documentarian. Makers Ken Burns and Lynn Novick join me now. And I just have to say, I've had a chance to see some of this, and it's, and it's breathtaking. Thank you. Uh, and what you address is America's role, America's response here. And what you ask of the viewer is to just be honest. Yes about what happened. Why is that so important? Well, I think we now have a kind of history that gets sanitized. We're concerned that we don't want to show the more difficult aspects of it. And I think for a long time with regard to the Holocaust, we were protected by the Atlantic Ocean and the continent of Europe and thought we didn't know. We knew everything that was going on and that we weren't in any way involved. And we're not. We're not complicit in the Holocaust. We, in fact, let in more refugees than any other sovereign nation. This is true. As Ken Burns, a documentarian, did a, a documentary on the U.S. and the Holocaust. Um, and then kind of gets into a conversation about, are we seeing now the U.S. Uh, uh, playing in, 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 in more bigotry? And how does this immigration conversation come up as well? Keep listening. 